things we think are poetry are talking about our deeper reality. And so many things that we think are describing something real are sending us all over the place unhappy. When I was, um, I wanted to talk today about being seen in Zen practice and what it, um, most of us come to this with some need to have um, a part of a scene that wasn't seen before, a kind of suffering scene that isn't seen. Maybe we don't even know that's what we're doing. Maybe we just want to relax. Why do we want to relax? Why do we want to calm down? Can everyone hear me back there, John? Good. When I, when I first started this, um, I really wanted to be seen by my teacher in this way. And I fought, I fought with all my teachers. I was not easy. I am not an easy Zen student. Um, but um, I don't trust anything until I see it for myself. So that results, that means I really like this particular religion because that's what we're supposed to do. And it means that I could be tough at times. But, um, but the way that I wanted to be seen, and this is the thing that I think gets so tricky in this spiritual path. The way that in the beginning I wanted to be seen was that I wanted my particular ideas about who I was to be confirmed. And that's what I understood as being seen. And when they weren't confirmed, I got really upset. And I tried to figure out clever ways of seeming like I was practicing the Dharma and, and actually getting the, you know, having all kinds of ideas about my teachers and their shortcomings and all of this. And um, so that I could very cleverly confirm my ideas of who I was. I wanted to stay. I didn't want to um, be free. I wanted to have the same person I believed I was just be happier. Like I just wanted to kind of clean the house that I already lived in. I didn't want to burn down the house. But, um, but then there was another kind of being seen that, um, that wasn't that at all. And I think learning to discern these two is, is very important in a Zen community. The other kind of being seen is when someone else, their bound idea of who I was, was being pushed onto me. And um, there was something in me that was saying, no, I don't, I don't actually want to accept your idea of who I, I am. At that time, I didn't want to accept their idea of who I was because I was addicted to my own idea of who I was. So it was a trade-off of addiction. But over time, um, as I became less interested in constantly believing my own ideas about myself, the other one didn't change. 
I still was not interested in another person's version of me being shoved down my throat. That was of no interest. I think for most of us, that's probably true. But on this path, we can confuse the two. So it becomes really, um, when we're looking at views in Zen practice, we have to get very clear about what kind of resistance we're feeling. Are we feeling a resistance that is a resistance because the person that is in front of us is actually trying to create a space for us to not attach to our own ideas of ourself, and we're resisting that? Or is the person in front of us trying to shove their ideas onto us, and we're resisting that? I would say the first one is not going to get us very far toward happiness, and the second one is really appropriate. And we have to be able to clarify that. If we confuse the two, we run into a whole lot of trouble. Because if we think that um, every resistance we feel is somebody trying to put their ideas onto us, then the spiritual path gets cut off. But if we see every resistance we have to something as my limitations as a spiritual practitioner, then we don't call out power and we don't call out domination and we don't call out all kinds of historical things that are actually creating violence in our communities and our world. So we can't flop around. We have to be very, very clear what's going on for ourselves. If we're not, our communities will be in confusion. We will just be confused. Liberation will not be able to happen because we'll be afraid of all mirrors. We'll be angry at all mirrors. Or in the other way, liberation won't happen because we think it's all our problem. Because the other person is some sort of guru who has it all right and we're just falling apart. Either one of those will get us nowhere. So we always have to ask ourselves when we're having a feeling that we're not being seen. Who wants to be seen? Who's the one who wants to be seen in that moment? Is it my bound up, conditioned self that wants to be seen, to be known as it is, to be confirmed as it is? Or is it the mind of liberation that wants to stop being told that it's some pint-sized version of itself, that it's puny and limited? And this is where our practice has to become very skilled. And it's also, um, you know, this, this is where I, my feeling around Zen or my experience of Zen is not that we are um, coming up with some set of ideas that we're going to interpret exactly the right way and get right and then have the conversation that we all agree on. 
our freedom is not um, based on some transcendent getting it right. There's no transcendent getting it right in our practice. Our freedom as Sangha is creating a space for everyone to experience their own freedom. Now, I don't know what your freedom looks like. You know what your freedom looks like. And if you don't know yet, you do. You just don't know you do. But, um, and that can be trusted. That you don't know yet, but you do, you just don't know that you do, that is the path that can be trusted. Because there is a vein, there is a canary in a coal mine, there is something that can be followed deeply that will take you there, that will take us there. And to trust that in each other, that if we do this together, that can be trusted and that will unfold. But the trick is, you know, when somebody tries to tell me or tries to tell you, when somebody says, you know, this is, I'm going to give you feedback now about who you are, whatever that is, that's important. We give each other feedback. We reflect each other. We have views, and I speak a view about what I may see, and you speak a view about what you may see in me. But what we have this tendency to do is to take that view and turn it into a truth an absolute truth, a definite truth, and then we fight with it. We either grab onto it because we really like that particular absolute truth view, or we start shoving it away because we don't like that absolute truth view. And then there's all this mind wrestling that happens, and we spend hours and hours of every day talking ourselves into, no, that's not really the way that I am, and why do they think that about me, and da 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 It goes on and on in some version or a whole society that has ideas of who we are, and battling with that. But the mind, your mind, my mind, cannot be known by anyone else in the way that we know it. Cannot be known by anyone else. Now, we know this intellectually. But to actually let this into the fabric of our bodies and into our morality and into the way we engage each other, it's a very different reality. I cannot know. I may, you know, I know Rafa for a few weeks, I know Laura and live with her for 15 years, and I don't know the inside of either one of their minds any different. There's no movement at all on that. So, if, I, if my being seen is dependent on somebody thinking that somebody is going to be able to experience me the way I experience me, mm. road of suffering. It's just not going to happen. It cannot happen. And so then, what is it to be with each other, right? What does it mean? What's happening when I feel seen? 
What's happening when somebody sits in front of me and suddenly I feel seen? Now what, you know, you may all have very different feelings about this. My feeling about what is happening is that person has cultivated a space for me to see an aspect of myself that I either have not been able to see before or has not been, I haven't been able to see for a very long time because of the way that I have talked to myself or cut myself off or whatever. And suddenly this person in front of me has cultivated a relationship or is a part of cultivating a relationship where now I can see myself. And we get confused and think that they saw me. They saw their projection of me, and that's fine, but that's a whole other universe that we know nothing about. But to be with people who actually cultivate spaces so that we can expand the seeing of ourselves, that's no small thing. And there are ways to interact with each other where what's in our heart is to always create environments where people's seeing of themselves grows. Now that is not always comfortable. A lot of the growth of the seeing of ourselves goes through very, very difficult territory. And we don't want to go, so we just stop, and I'm done seeing now for a while, maybe six or seven years. <laughs> we take a break from practice and do other things. But um, but that's not really our experience most of the time, right? Mo most of our experience is that people are communicating to us all kinds of views that are not about us growing into our own seeing, that are not about growing into seeing, but actually about constructing more little tiny cells that we're going to grab onto until we're white-knuckled. And, um, and we raise those up and we turn them into idols and they become who we are and that's that, we live that life. Some of those make us happy, we think. Some of those make us miserable, we think. Actually, they all make us miserable. But they feel in less, greater or lesser degrees. Um, But this is where the path gets very, very tricky because, and where discernment is so important, because if the path is the widening of my own seeing, of me, my own witnessing of me, then if I get confused, go back to the beginning, if I get confused and think that someone's feedback or view of me is not cultivating space. And maybe it's not, and then you're not confused. So, that's fine. But if we get confused, and we take the opening of that space anxiously as a danger, which we might, and that's fine. But to know that that's what we're doing, rather than to flip it and say, they're just a terrible person. Because now I'm feeling anxious, because now I'm expanding into territories I'd rather not see. So it's at that moment, which is a um, profound moment both in terms of wisdom and ethics. Because we are ready to do a ton of violence when we get anxious. 
We just whip it out. So to actually be able to stay with the anxiety of being born into a wider self. And not let small self win by flipping it back onto somebody else so that we can keep the boundaries small, tight, and what we know. And to keep the boundaries small, tight, and what we know, boy, we will drag people along through the muck to make sure that stays true. I have witnessed this in myself many times. You know, and I was thinking, too, in terms of what this um, sangha is concerned about, or members of this sangha, which is how do we do this, considering histories of power, considering histories of justice and domination and these things. If we're confused on this point, that becomes very, very, very hard to do. If we're confused on when our, f when our um, being seen is about our own ego attachment versus when our being seen is about expansion. If we're confused on that point, it's very hard to have a conversation, if not impossible. This is where the two liberations have to come together into a conversation about what do we mean when we're talking about liberation. I, in my, because I think there's one dharma, I mean, there are many expressions of the dharma, but life being free is life being free. That we can't separate social liberation from personal liberation. They cannot be understood apart in my feeling about things, in my experience of things, in my experience of my own mind and heart. But... Um, but we can use them to confuse the other. We can use either one of those to completely confuse the other one. All the time. And this, you know, and this goes to this... Um, this putting my truth onto another person because I think I know who they are. or somebody doing that to me. It's really important to know that Zen is just not about confusing any relative truth, any relative truth, even the relative truth of Buddhist, the Buddhist path, with an absolute truth. There is no truth that we can understand in our limited conditioned mind that is true always in every context, no matter what. That just is not the way we do ethics. It's not the way we understand truth. Because the minute we do that, violence emerges. The second we do it, I've now got it, you don't, I'm going to tell you how it is. Your subjectivity, your mind, your heart, that's just, you're just confused. I just need to work that out for you. <laughs> um. 
And so our ethics are not, if you look at Buddhist ethics all the way back to the Buddha, he didn't use transcendent good and evil as, um, as how he understood the way we interact with each other. He used harm and harmony. So it wasn't, oh, is what I did transcendently evil in every situation. Not our, eth not our morality. Not ours. Um, ours is, did what I do cause harm? And if somebody's telling me it caused harm, then I should maybe take that in, even if I didn't see it. Because maybe if somebody told me there's harm and I didn't see it, well, it's because maybe I wasn't conscious of my intention. Or maybe I have a story about my intention that isn't my actual underlying intention. Because maybe my underlying intention is rooted in a view that I don't see. That's so in my conditioning, so deeply in my conditioning, that I just have no idea it's operating. And so if we have a vow to not cause harm, then we have to listen. We have to at least, it doesn't mean people are right or that they're transcendently true if they give me feedback that I've caused them harm. It's just I have to take that view with respect. I have to respect that view. And I have to take it in. Not with the attitude of, oh, they're right and I'm wrong, or oh, they're wrong and I'm right. We've moved into the realm of transcendence at that point. We're off the map. We've left Mother Earth. That's not how things happen here. Hummingbirds don't go around thinking this way. They just react to their context. So the, for us, it's not, are they right and I'm wrong? It's, maybe I'm going to take this in, and is there something there? Is there something there that I can use to assess harm and harmony? Is there something there that I can use to assess this? Probably there is, even if you totally disagree with the person. Even if their view is threatening. Even if, if their view is threatening, though, there's something there. That's pretty much a guarantee. It may not be what they think is there, but there's something there. My mind just stopped. Instead of, for me, what I'm trying to do, and I'm not always good at this, but what I'm trying to do is when I do get a view from another person, instead of getting into... Um, are they right or wrong? And again, I constantly fail at this. But in, in, but in trying to not get into, is that right about me or is that wrong about me? But to ask a different question, which is, what was transmitted? What was transmitted from that universe to this universe? Because we're going to get the signals. The signals are not going to overlay or match up. They're just not. What, what was thought in that universe was in a giant, infinite context that I have no access to. And in my conscious mind, there's tons of access in the mystery, but there's no access in the conscious mind. And they have no access to the context in my mind. So there's no, there's no finding uh, A equals A in this relationship. There's no A equals A in any of them, any of these interpersonal relationships. They're not there. And we fight, fight, fight. I watch so many arguments. It's really interesting because I work at um, Union Theological Seminary in the daytime during the week. And um, 
so many arguments arise around people using terms differently. Full red-faced fights. And I'm just watching them going, oh, they think this term means this, and they think this term means this. And that's all that's going on. They actually agree in what they're pointing to. So this transmission, um, we have to assume that we're using Morse code at best. We're just getting some clicks across, and now it's in a whole other universe, and we don't know what's going on over there. which is a very different way of being, because then, if that's true, let's just pretend that's true. If that's true, then I have to approach everyone with curiosity. Infinite, total, constant curiosity. What's going on over in the universe? And they'll tell me and I still won't understand, but, you know, there will be communication happening in some way. But it isn't so much whether I understand or whether I don't understand, actually. I'll do my best. But it's whether I'm receiving that communication with respect, whether I'm receiving the communication with wholeness, whether I'm receiving them as a whole person. Just watching the little ways throughout a day that I um, don't do that. Is um, tragic, really. So, what is transmitted? So, in our being seen, eleven when? Okay. Um, in our being seen, right? If it's all closed off like this, at least our conscious minds, then freedom would require that we let go of binding ourselves to this kind of... Um, if somebody says something, it's true. If I say something about myself, it's true in this penetrating, absolute, for all time way. But more than that, are we willing to let ourselves really see? Like to really identify the seeing is the identification of all the ways we refuse to see. The seeing is the way we turn our heads all the time. Uh -huh. I don't want to see that part. The seeing is that. Seeing again and again and again the way the infinite mind that we are, the dynamically changing mind that we are, that's just a little too humbling. That's just a little too unsure. That's just a little too big. Like, what am I going to do with all that? That's not navigable. If I let all that in, then I know I really don't know what's going on. Like, that's one of the casualties of that big mind, is I have no idea what's happening.
But the beauty of that, and we often call this taking this realization, taking our Dharma seat. There is nothing, the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. There is nothing that can shake the whole seeing of one's wholeness. There is no more loyalty to the thoughts of others about who you are, to the thoughts of yourself about who you are, which are all inherited thoughts of others about who you are. That loyalty gets, that erodes. You get caught. I mean, everybody, you, everybody gets caught. But there's a difference between being caught and being loyal to those beliefs and being caught and not being loyal to them. Watching them rise up and go, oh, there you are. Yeah, I, there I am believing that I am this little whatever. You're saying I am. I was thinking about um, I was thinking about this part of the talk. I was thinking about um, Nina Simone's "Feeling Good." The song's great because, um, and there's no way I'm going to try to sing a Nina Simone song, <laughs> but um, the. Uh, the realization of the person in the song is all this, you know, you know how I feel, birds flying high, you know how I feel, sun in the sky, you know how I feel. There's this recognition all the way through it of nature confirming completely the freedom and liberation and the wholeness of the person. No other views, no other people, no other anything it is the wholeness of mind and heart and life itself. Just like the Buddha touching the earth when the Mara said, who are you to think that you can wake up fully? And the Buddha called for the earth because there were no other views. He wasn't going to recite a text. He wasn't going to point to a god. He wasn't going to bring it. It's done. It has always been this way and will always be this way. And in the case of Nina, at the end, she confirms, you know, that it is, um, what is it, freedom is my, mine and I know how I feel. No convincing, no let's negotiate. There is just sitting in liberation. And this is where the Buddha was so um, genius in terms of understanding that liberation and ethics, that wisdom and ethics were intimately tied. Because when we are liberated from binding ourselves to ideas of ourselves and we see ourselves as whole and complete, there's no desire to harm another person or ourselves or anything else. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense not intellectually. It doesn't make sense to the body that's free because the body that's free is gentle. And the body that's free is respectful. 
And the body that's free actually experiences, and I know this, many of you have had um, experiences where you said, I thought this was poetry, and now I realize it's real. Um, the body experiences life as gentle. The body experiences life as animated. The body experiences life as alive and awake in spirit. The body experiences life as whole. And there's just no way to bring yourself to harm it without incredible pain to yourself. But this takes um, discipline. We have to create these kinds of environments. If we're going to do this, we don't have to, but the way Zen sees itself is we create these kinds of environments that just frustrate all the little parts that want to be seen and confirmed in that way. Frustrate them again and frustrate them again until we give them up. And just keep frustrating them. And then you go do something else and you hate that or like that. Or you like it and somebody takes it away from you and now you hate them. <laughs> and it just, we just keep doing that as a community. And then people reflect something back to you and you don't like that because you didn't choose these people. Who are these people? You know, and why do they get to tell me what, who I am? So, and so you just keep doing that. And then suddenly, periodically, there are these different kinds of seeing. We call insight. But insight is just a little more me. Not in the little sense, a little more of what being is. Wow, I never actually thought this being in the world looked like that. And now that's included. And then another thing's included, and then another thing's included, and then another thing's included. And then, wow, I'm kind of okay. may be enough for now. I would just say that um, I am so impressed with the practice here, with all of your individual practices here, the ones that I know. I am so deeply moved by what this community is willing to take on and include in our practice. And so that what I hope, what I pray to be true, is that the language of practice that emerges from this place is clear and discerning and nourishing and loving and cares for us and makes sense out of things that we have so struggled to make sense out of for so long. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.